This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Uh, we have a very special episode for you uh, this week. Joining me on the show is really one of my personal heroes, a prisoner of Zion, Jonathan Pollard. Uh, for those listeners unfamiliar with Jonathan's story, we're going to really give him a chance to share it with you right here on the show. Uh, so without further ado, I'd like to welcome Jonathan Pollard to the podcast. Jonathan, thanks so much for being with me. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Let's begin. You spent roughly 30 years in prison for the Jewish people, for the people of Israel. Your story is well known to many, uh, but not to everyone. So as short or long as you want to make it, how would you summarize what happened to you and uh, and how you came home? Um, the genesis of the story really began when I realized that there had been a an undeclared intelligence embargo against Israel following the attack on the uh, Iraqi nuclear reactor. We're talking about a U.S. intelligence embargo. Right, right. right. So Caspar Weinberger, who was the then Secretary of Defense, and Admiral Bobby Ray Inman, who was the Deputy Director of the CIA, both really virulent enemies of Israel, uh, decided that um, uh, Israel basically should be cut off from most of the important intelligence uh, flow that was going to the country um, as part of the bilateral intelligence exchange. So they went ahead and did that. And um, I found I was um, part of this intelligence exchange and it was pretty obvious uh, what was happening. So in a situation like that, there are three things that you can do. You can either look away, and that wasn't uh, a viable option for me. Um, you could try to change the situation from within, and uh, I did. I tried, and uh, that was uh, absolutely uh, useless. Or you could take matters into your own hands. And... Um, Given what was at stake at the time, I acted really on my fears and my concerns for the state of Israel and our people more than I did my own. And um, I did what I could to make sure that the information that Israel received was supposed to have been given to Israel. And this is why uh, in my indictment, which nobody seems to pay particular attention to, it states specifically that I did not intend to harm the United States. This is an important distinction that a lot of people uh, either don't know about or don't care to take into account. But it's a critical um, issue because there were many allegations made against me that um, I had compromised this system, that system, agents, what have you. And the bottom line on this is that there is some information which is so sensitive, which if compromised under the best of intentions and to the best of friends, allies, um, would in fact damage national security. So if that had been the case, I should have been 
indicted for having intended to harm the country because that I should have known that that information would result in that kind of damage. So I don't have to go into details. I can't go into details as far as what exactly was involved in the operation to defend my actions from charges that I damaged American uh, national security. If I had, I would have been charged accordingly. Mm -hmm. The issue really came to a head with the um, damage assessment that was issued by the Justice Department. And it took me almost 20 years to get it. And I understood why. What they said in this damage assessment, which the public didn't see until 20 years later, was the fact that the only real damage I did was to cause certain American Arab allies to feel that I had made Israel too strong. And that the information that I had given uh, Israel um, should have been the subject of negotiation rather than a unilateral gesture on my part. Mm -hmm. Well, the fact of the matter is that information should have been going to Israel and wasn't. So in a sense, I wasn't breaking the law. The people that had instituted this undeclared intelligence embargo were breaking the law. At the very least, violating the uh, 1983 Memorandum of Understanding between the two nations. Between the two countries, correct. So these are issues that I, I guess a lot of people would rather not uh, take into account, especially in the United States, because, you know, they basically don't want me seen as an ideologue mm -hmm. who tried to make sure that Israel got the information that they were legally and politically entitled to. Right. I'm not trying to justify what I did. I mean, I broke the law. Mm -hmm. But I just want people to understand exactly what the nature of my actions actually were. Right. So, so let's talk about that for a moment, because, well, first of all, when your story has come up where, or the Pollard issue over the years, it's no secret that I'm somebody who was very active for your freedom uh, over the right. years. And, uh, you know, I participated in many demonstrations and hunger strikes, and we, we put out a lot of information over the years trying to call for your freedom. And what, one of the main points I would always push is that question which you just addressed, you know, why was the U.S. preventing this information from flowing to Israel in the first place? Like, why did you have to do what you did? Like, what was actually the context of your action? Uh, and that's something nobody ever brings up. Well, I tried, I tried to explain uh, to people on, my, on the Israeli team that I was actually operating in, in a sense, enemy territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, the feeling within the American intelligence community then, and I'm sure it continues to be the case today, is one of sheer hatred and condescension towards Israel. Um, and it was really a revelation for me to discover this once I got into the community. What you're saying certainly contradicts the mainstream Hasbara or APEC party lines. Well, it not only contradicts the APAC party line and the JINSA party line, uh, but it also contradicts the Mossad party line. Mm -hmm. um, the Mossad, it's really sad to say this, but they did everything they humanly could 
to ensure that I never got out of prison. Really? Yeah. I mean, part of it was a um, a territory, I guess, uh, beef between the Mossad and uh, Rafi Eitan and the organization that I worked for, LACAM. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, they took out on me what they couldn't take out on Rafi, who was seen as a competitor. Okay. But they went beyond that and they provided horrible information, just a pack of lies to the Americans in terms of what the operation was, uh, who I was, uh, my state of mind, and a continuous stream of recommendations against my release. This wow. is what the Mossad did to me. Wow. And, you know, it's something I, I can't uh, change right now. There's no redress for me, but I consider them to be equally responsible for my sentence and for the length of time that I served. They were actually my worst enemies, the Mossad. And there was no reason for them to do that, except for the fact that what the operation showed was that um, they weren't getting the information they claimed to have been getting. Rafi basically showed them up. And uh, unfortunately, there's an, uh, you know, a feeling that the Mossad is an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing organization. Well, in certain circumstances, it approaches that. I mean, they certainly have done wonderful things over the past years with Iran. But in terms of my operation and what it involved, no, they were abject failures. They knew about the intelligence embargo, and they said nothing. Absolutely nothing. And they did nothing to circumvent it. And this is something we have to bear in mind going forward, that the Mossad's relationship to the Americans may in fact be too close, way too close, and that there should be some daylight, some major daylight between the uh, our premier intelligence organization and the American intelligence community. There's too much... Uh, well, how shall I put this uh, politely? Um, we seem to jump every time the Americans snap their fingers. And the Mossad is largely responsible for that problem. So you're saying that it's because people at the upper levels of the Mossad just see our survival as dependent on the Americans? Or have the Americans actively co-opted the Mossad? I think it's a combination of both. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a certain feeling within the Israeli intelligence community that uh, we can't survive unless we're a more or less dependent colony of the United States. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, um, there's a certain feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're a loyal servant of the empire, if I could put it that way. I would say that this is something that is uh, a deep psychological phenomenon with the Jewish people, especially Ashkenazi Jews, because, you know, this is really how anti-Semitism as a system of oppression operated when we were in Europe. Like, let's say during feudalism, for example, you know, Jews weren't lords and we weren't peasants. We were these like middle agent oppressors. We would be the tax collectors, be the money lenders. And we really saw our survival as dependent on making ourselves useful to powerful useful, people. useful to powerful people. Yeah. And this is the mindset we have now. In, and I include the army in this as well. The military. Right. It's the it's, same thing. Yeah, we can't think independently. We can't make a move 
without checking with our Lord and Master, the Poritz, to make sure that it's okay with them. Mm-hmm. And of course, nine times out of ten, it isn't. And we use that as an excuse for inaction. Right. We know that uh, with the Army in particular, they've excelled at mowing the grass, kicking the can down the road. And so it's convenient, even for the military, mm-hmm. to say, oh, the Americans wouldn't like us to do this. So they give us the excuse to refrain from doing things that we ourselves would rather not do. But it's often true, meaning the Americans wouldn't like us to do certain things. They wouldn't like us to do anything. That's the problem. Look, they treat us far worse than any other country I can think of right now, to include countries like Syria, Iran, North Korea, Cuba even, China. We're a punching bag for them. Their operating mode with us is one of condescension, Mm -hmm. and it's our fault. They treat us the way we see ourselves. You remember the Maraglin, where they said, you know, we were like uh, grasshoppers. Yeah, how did they know what the uh, giants thought of us? What they expressed was their own self-loathing, their own uh, inferiority complex. Well, I don't see things that way, but apparently I'm kind of out of step Mm-hmm. with the zeitgeist here in the uh, military uh, political establishment. So we essentially came back to our land. We came back to life. We declared independence. Uh, in many ways, what we did was we just kind of took down the British flag and put a Jewish flag on a British colonial system. But we No, what we did was we took the British flag down and put the American flag up. That's mm-hmm. what we did. The Jewish flag has less importance even than a, an American state flag. That's the way we handle ourselves right now. Mm. When somebody spits in your face, mm-hmm. the correct response is to punch the guy in the face and make sure he never does it again. True. It's not to take out your handkerchief and wipe the spittle off your face and carry on. Right. And that's all we do. We have no sense of self-respect as a nation at all. And I really question the degree of independence that we should pride ourselves on right now. We are not independent. We haven't gained our independence yet. Well, I would certainly argue that one of the objectives of Jewish history in this chapter of our people's story is independence from the United States. Like that is something that we need to work towards the same way we work towards freeing our land from the British or reviving the Hebrew language or ingathering of the exiles. Like, this is a goal of Jewish liberation that we need our young people focused on. I totally agree. I couldn't agree more. Because unless and until we start thinking independently, we're not going to win the war for survival. Because the American government, writ large, sees us only as a problem. That's all. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you know, when we keep trying to make ourselves useful to the poets, All we do is diminish, actually diminish our importance to this force. We're still living under the yoke of Edom. This is the Galut of Edom. This is the fourth empire. Correct. Malchut Edom, the empire of Esav. Correct. And we're not free yet. Right. Look, Esther, Aleya Shalom, told me when she was dying that it was very easy for a Jew to leave Galut to come to Israel, Eretz HaKodesh. But it was very, very difficult for the Jew to get Galut out of his head. And I'm sorry to say that she was right. 
she was 100% right. Look, every nation that experiences uh, material liberation needs to undergo what we'll call a post-colonial process afterwards in order to liberate itself psychologically. Absolutely. And that's uh, something we, we haven't done yet. No, we haven't done it. I mean, the point of the matter is, material even, we haven't done it. And it's the military-industrial complex in the United States and their allies here in Israel that benefit. The people of Israel don't benefit. The country doesn't benefit from prolonging this agony. I remember when uh, Bibi made his first address to a joint session of Congress. He said, look, um, you know, we don't need uh, economic assistance anymore. Mm -hmm. And he proposed at the time that all military assistance be conducted uh, on the basis of uh, joint R&D projects. And at the time, it was it was quite revolutionary, and I, I supported what he said at the time. But now I understand that even joint R&D projects should be avoided like the plague. They're no good for us. They limit our ability to sell our, our military gear. Um, they slow us down. And they also compromise in a very serious way a lot of the security aspects of our projects. So even under the best of circumstances that Bibi was talking about at the time, it wasn't good enough. And so I would argue that materially, we still haven't broken free from Edom until and unless we stop receiving military assistance from the United States and get on with our own defense. We will never, ever start down the road of true independence. Right. And you're very much a symbol of this, meaning just the choice you had to make. Most Jews in the United States who identify as pro-Israel or Zionist tend to see Israel as the Robin to America's Batman. You know, they justify their own existence and the choices they've made in life based on the fact that we're all on the same team anyway. I can support Israel, go visit Israel, send my kids to learn in yeshiva in Israel while living in the United States, making my money in the United States and going to an APEC conference once a year. It doesn't work that way. I'm going to go further. I'm going to say that your story, meaning you as a symbol, and this is, I think, what makes you so important, is that your very story forces people to confront those contradictions, meaning you've smashed that idol. You know, when your story was taught to me by Eli Yosef, you know, Eli Yosef, roughly 20 years ago, went from school to school here in Israel, you know, lecturing about you and about your story and the choices you made. Right. And he really presented you as someone who corrected the sin of American Jews during the Holocaust. You know, during the Holocaust, the Jewish leadership uh, of the United States went to Roosevelt and begged to intervene. Well, and they sabotaged the Bergson group and they sabotaged the Aguda rabbi, the 300 Aguda rabbis that went to protest, you know, America's they indifference. Did towards they did that for a reason. They did that because Roosevelt said to them, you guys are Americans. And basically by saying to them, you guys are Americans, you know, Hitler says this is a Jewish war, but you're Americans and we expect you to be loyal to America. You know what was interesting about that is on or about the same time that that happened, that protest occurred, mm -hmm. there were a group of African-American civil rights leaders and um, union leaders that went in to see Roosevelt. And they told him straight out, if you don't pay our people an equal wage to what their white uh, colleagues are making, we're going out on strike. 
the entire black American workforce was prepared to go out on strike at the most excruciating moment of the war for the United States. And Roosevelt buckled. And this is a lesson that our Jews don't understand in the United States. The Goyim only understand a fist. And what the Jews, our poor, stupid Jews in the United States, our leaders are interested in is a seat at the table. You know, even though it's parked by the uh, toilets, mm -hmm. just as long as they're seated at the table, eating the same food as the Goyim, then they're very happy. The black community understands, no, the black community understands very well that when you're a minority, a despised minority, the only way you get respect is by threatening, mm -hmm. issuing a serious threat. But our organizations don't do that in the United States. They don't because they want to be part of the system. You want to be white. You know what? Let me tell you a funny story. A Jewish leader, so-called leader, came to visit me once in prison. And he was asking me why I couldn't find a legal way to act on my concerns for the state of Israel. And Okay. So I asked him a simple question. I said, if I had walked into your office and presented proof to you of what was going on at the time in terms of this betrayal, this, this stab in the back of Israel, what would you have done? And he was quiet for a while. And then he looked at me and he said, I would have called the FBI and turned you in. Mm -hmm. And I said, why? He said, because you're threatening my position as a loyal American citizen. That's right. And I just looked at him and I said, well, you just answered your own question then as to why I didn't go to somebody like you. And that's the truth of it. And that's what you threaten, meaning your story threatens that illusion that U.S. Jewry has created for itself, meaning you smashed that idol. Uh, whether you meant to or not at the time, you did that. And I think that needs to be understood when people talk about the discomfort that many American Jews have with you. Uh, a lot of the accusations that have been spread, I don't know if you want to address any of the things people have said about you, but people are uncomfortable with the reality of your story. People are uncomfortable with the very idea that some Jew had to make a choice that he is a Jew and not an American, meaning he had to choose between those identities. It wasn't a hard choice for me. I'm, I'm speaking as an individual. Mm -hmm. And what I tried to tell people was the case was not a, so much about dual loyalty as it was a dual standard of justice. Okay. And that it's proved my point that America is Galut. It's not the Golden of Medina. Mm -hmm. It is still Galut. And by using that term, I made so many enemies. It was incredible in the Jewish establishment because they said at the very least, I should use a more polite term like diaspora. Right, not exile. Galut is exile for listeners who don't understand. Galut, Galut is a punishment. And how could the Golden of Medina be a punch? I never saw it as, a, as the Golden of Medina. I never did. Mm -hmm. And it's appearing less and less that way today. I think Jews are... Well, that's the, look, that's the point. You, every, every American Jew that I run into, I ask them the same question. When are you coming home? Mm -hmm. You know that Galut is closing down. You know that, don't you? And they grudgingly admit that things are getting really bad. Look, the news today from uh, this totally useless organization, the ADL, 
was that I think it was close to 29% of Americans hold anti-Semitic views. Really, you know, vile stuff. Mm -hmm. And leaving aside the fact that the ADL is part of the problem and not part of the solution, this should be a wake-up call for people. But I'm reminded of what some of my relatives from Germany told me, the ones that got out, that they couldn't believe that such a cultured land such as Germany could really even consider some of the things that Hitler was saying. Well, I'm not making the case that the United States is turning into Nazi Germany, but look, you know the situation in New York right now. It's horrible, and that's going to spread. And the fact of the matter is, you know, from a fundamental standpoint, there are two ways of killing a Jew. You can kill him with kindness, and that leads to assimilation and cultural destruction, or you can have a korban and just kill them outright. I don't know which way it's going right now. I mean, if I were living in New York, I, I would be pretty scared right now. So the physical threats would probably be foremost in my mind. Well, one thing is clear, that the Jewish people are uniquely positioned to be scapegoated in the event of major economic downturns. And the empire is collapsing, meaning the U.S. empire is in decline. So it's almost unavoidable you know, that things are going to get worse and worse for the Jews. I agree. The empire, look, as far as I'm concerned, it's all over but for the shouting right now. The empire is crumbling. It may not seem that way, but if you look at the fundamentals, both the economic and the social fundamentals, it's crumbling. You know, I read social media very carefully in the United States. And what I've noticed is that both left and right are preparing people for the inevitability of a civil war. Mm -hmm. And you know, whether that's accurate or not, when you sensitize people to the inevitability of a violent conflict, something's going to happen. Right. Something will happen. And this actually leads me back to the problem here right now with the opposition calling for civil war. Let me ask you a question connecting these two topics. You know, when you look at the, the playbook of U.S. intelligence in places like Cuba or Venezuela or, or Egypt. Or Chile. Or Chile. Um, to what extent should we be seeing American fingerprints on a lot of what's been going on here with the protests against the government, certain statements by public figures, the role of our media in, in supporting a lot of these figures and protests, uh, the role of the Bagats, meaning should we be, should we be concerned about the U.S. trying to take down this government? Yes, there's no doubt in my mind. That's the modus operandi. Mm -hmm. Look, we, we know right now for a fact that the New Israel Fund is largely backing a lot of these moves right now. Mm -hmm. And that, if that's an easy diversion to kind of convince you that, well, no, there's no larger player here. But there is. There is, because the U.S. has become an echo chamber. The Biden administration has become an echo chamber for the opposition here. The opposition makes all kinds of statements about a threat to democracy, about our, our independent institutions being compromised, etc., etc. And within a day, sometimes less than a day, you hear the echo coming out of the spokesman for the State Department or the White House press secretary 
and it's it's, it's almost immediate. It's a call and response kind of uh, phenomenon. Right. And this is the problem, for example, with the judicial reform that we're going through right now. A lot of people don't want to admit the fact that it was Aharon Barak that instituted a judicial coup d'etat in this country. Mm -hmm. They were very smart about this. And so they convinced everybody that the courts were the the bastion of uh, the defense of democracy, when in fact they were the exact opposite of that. If you really look at what the court has done in this country, mm-hmm. they have completely subverted democracy. They've mm-hmm. turned it on its head. Right. They define democracy as being like the West. That's their definition of democracy. Western but values. It, 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 yeah, Western values. But here's the joke. I mean, all you know we're trying to do right now, in a sense, is return the courts to the people. Mm-hmm. It, which is exactly what it is advising consent. It's exactly how the Americans choose their Supreme Court justices. That's all we're trying to do. It, it's almost uh, like copying them. Mm-hmm. But these people here are so blinded and hysterical about the loss of control over people's lives that they're completely inverting the story. We're trying to return democracy to our judicial system. Not strip it. The problem with the court right now is that the reforms haven't gone far enough. Mm-hmm. There should be no justices on the selection committee at all. The people speak. The people pick the judges. That is in the legislature. That's what we should have. Absolutely no judges. No judges should be on the selection committee whatsoever. We should have a retroactive age limit. On justices and we should also have provision for the legislature to add judges if necessary mm-hmm. you have to understand that there was a coup d'etat that was implemented through the judiciary under Aharon Barak mm-hmm. and it's going to have to take some very serious counteraction to reset the proper balance between justice and And democracy right it's basically a self-perpetuating oligarchy um, correct part of it is that you know Barack stacked it with a very uh, narrow ideological click that correct and almost nobody in the country correct and you know we can look at that system two ways we can look at the system as uh, you know the theft of democracy uh, and, and essentially the coup d'etat that you described it as you know in the 1990s but I think we can also look at it as you the divine hand that play here maybe things happen the way they're supposed to happen we don't believe in coincidence we could maybe you know if we were to start stacking the bench with uh great rabbanim uh who would sit alongside esther chayut and her friends but to democratize and diversify the the supreme court meaning to have the the people actually sitting on the bench the justices represent a, a broader consensus representation of- I don't have a problem with that so long as they are elected by the Knesset. Mm-hmm. If the Knesset comes to the decision that somebody like, um, I'm just using an example, Kavod Harav Mordechai Eliyahu, would make a fine judge. Mm-hmm. Fine. I would have been very happy to see a man of that stature, mm-hmm. that tremendous stature on the court. It really would have been a revel- another type of revolution. 
And it would make so, more the Bailey's feel represented by the Supreme Court. Correct. I have no problem with that at all. If it comes about as a result of a uh, Democratic vote in the Knesset, I have no problem with that at all. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, a lot of the controversy in this country over the last few weeks has really focused on this new government. You feel that judicial reforms aren't going far enough. Um, do you think that figures like Bezalel Smotrich or Itamar Ben-Gvir understand the broader geopolitical game that's being played? Do they know enough to be able to safeguard themselves from external threats, to be able to not walk into traps set for them? I hope so. I know both gentlemen, mm -hmm. and I have immense respect, um, not just for their courage, but for their intelligence. However, do they understand the world beyond our borders? That's the real question. Yes, I hope so. Mm -hmm. We spoke before about the need for Israel to get free of the United States, to become an independent country. What would you say to people who ask, well, how can we do that? You know, what can Israel do? What steps can Israel take in order to be independent if we want to? Okay, first of all, it requires a revolution in your mind that if you want something to eat, you don't go to the, uh, the slave owner and ask him for a bowl of porridge. You go plant your own crops, you harvest your own crops, you process your own crops, you eat your own food. By that, I mean, we have to understand that there isn't any, for example, any piece of military equipment that we can't produce ourselves, either independently or in collaboration with another country. You have to have an independent mindset before you start down that road of independence. You have to see it in your mind first and understand what that requires. If your only idea of independence is to hold out your hand for help, you'll never be independent. So on the issue of military equipment, there are two things to keep in mind. One, 99% of the equipment we can produce ourselves. Second of all, if we actually fought wars to win those wars, then we would be in a much better position geostrategically than we are now. And I use Iran as a case in point. We don't need the United States to defend ourselves from Iran. Right now, if you're honest about it, you have to admit that there is no level of conventional damage that could possibly eliminate or significantly retard the Iranian drive for a nuclear weapon. Unfortunately, the knowledge now of, of how to make a weapon has become institutionalized in Iran. The country itself represents a clear and present danger to our country. It represents an existential threat. And when you talk about existential threats, there's certain military options that have to be considered. Mm -hmm. You don't manage a problem like the Iranian nuclear program. You don't do that. You don't think partially. You have to react aggressively and decisively to the kind of existential threat they represent. You can't manage problems anymore like the Americans do. And the Americans haven't won a war, really, since the Second World War, if you really look at it. Right. But even their losing wars benefit certain sectors of the American ruling class, like the... Yeah, but it's the same thing here. Mm -hmm. there, there are clear winners in our inability to decisively defeat our enemies. Mm -hmm. People are making money on this. 
I mean, I hate to put it in such, you know, crude terms, but a lot of the military decision makers in this country and their political equivalents are making money on our inability to decisively defeat our enemies. And when I see a lot of Israeli high-ranking officers who retired suddenly becoming representatives of American military multinationals, there's your problem. No Israeli officer should ever become a representative of a foreign military industrial organization because their their loyalty is not to the state of Israel. So in terms of thinking independently, it even extends to the economic realm. You know, when the Americans snap their fingers and say, uh, you know, we don't want Chinese cars being driven by Israeli military officers or military personnel because, well, you know, their uh, systems could be uh, uploaded to the cloud and all of that. And we jump. They snap their fingers and we jump. Every economic program or national infrastructure program that we consider should be open to competitive bids from every country in the world. And if the Chinese win a bid fairly and honestly, then they should get the uh, contract. We shouldn't just jump every time the Americans snap their fingers. We should be independent in terms of our decision-making of who gets a contract after an honest legal bidding uh, contest. And if the Americans don't like that, the Americans are have so many Chinese companies operating in the United States right now, I, I can't even keep track of them. Don't come to me shaking your finger. Look at yourself in the mirror. Right. I think in regards to us or other developing countries in other parts of the world, you know, there is a concern on the Americans' part that we're moving. The world is shifting from a unipolar world to a multipolar world. Okay, that's not our problem. That's their problem. problem. Right. Their, their empire is in decline. and Their empire is crumbling. Okay, that's not our problem. It's their problem. You know, if they want us to be more receptive to their concerns, well, maybe they should treat us a little bit nicer than they are. You know, don't bark at me. Don't constantly criticize me. Don't lie to me. Don't stab me in the back. And maybe we'll listen to you at that point. If you talk to us politely, don't lecture us. We're a lot older than they are. We should know better. We should know better. We certainly should. But again, we came back with these complexes and have bought into the superpower patronage doctrine that we need a big, powerful Gentile to ensure our survival. We don't. We have only uh, one true ally. It's HaKodesh Baruch Hu. Hmm. There's only one power that we can depend on. And that's HaKodesh Baruch Hu. That's right. Uh, but even when it comes to making alliances with others, you know, most nations define their interests and then make alliances based on those interests. Unfortunately, Israel until now has behaved uh, first deciding who we want to be friends with and then defining our interests around that relationship. You're right. You're 100% correct. It's, it's a wrong way around. And uh, that, that's where we're at. You know the old expression, I think it was Lord Acton that said it, Countries, especially empires, have permanent interests, not permanent friendships. The one thing you can always count on from a patron is betrayal. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's just the way the world works. So how, in your opinion, can we wake the Jews of the diaspora up, the United States in particular? Meaning you, I said before that you are really very much a symbol 
of someone who chose his Jewish identity over his American identity, you know, corrected the sin of American Jews during the Holocaust, essentially smashed the idol of the American dream in the minds of the Jewish people. And that's maybe one of the reasons so many Jews are uncomfortable with you in the United States. But how can we wake them up? How can we, you know, obviously their situation is different than it was in the early 1980s. Perhaps people are more open to ideas they weren't open to then. Here's one idea that I actually ran by the former diaspora minister here. Mm -hmm. We all know right now that life for young American collegiate Jews is hell to the extent that they want to be openly identified as Jews or Zionists. Okay, I suggested that we get all our universities and technical schools together and we offer degrees to American or European Jewish kids to come here and either to start and complete or to complete their college educations in English, since we'll start off with science uh, courses, since uh, English is the language of science for the most part, and that we have dorms set up for them and uh, maybe summer work for them to set up in the hope that they'll stay. And that, uh, you know, Ulpan will be part of the program as well. And if we have, uh, you know, a co-ed system, you know, maybe they'll get married and have children and stay here. But we can't think anymore of Aliyah in normal terms. We have to see it as a rescue operation. And right now, the one group of, let's just say, American Jews that desperately need to be rescued are college-age Jewish Americans. And we have to do whatever is necessary to offer them refuge here. And nobody's argued with me on this. It isn't even a question of money, but it's the mindset here that I'm having a problem with. I've talked to a lot of American kids about this, and they would jump at the opportunity for this. But it's the mindset here that's the problem. What, what do we need all these kids for? You know, I've gotten that, actually. What do we need them for? We should be thinking of promoting our own kids. Well, unfortunately, that's not how this country was set up. And that's not how our people should be behaving. It's a wrong mindset. If we actually set up a program like this, that could get thousands of young American, for example, young American Jewish uh, college-age kids who are in science, engineering, math, technology, to come here, and to finish their degrees and to settle down here, everyone would benefit. I mean, it's part of the Giula, it's part of the ingathering. I know a lot of people who tell me in the United States, for example, we're waiting for Moshiach to go home. Mm. And I tell them, you've got it wrong way. He's waiting for you. Right. You have to come home now. I've heard every excuse in the book. And you have also. Right. And it doesn't work anymore. It's time to come home. And you have to be pretty brutal about this when you talk to them. I am. Mm -hmm. I tell them point blank. What are you what are you waiting for? Currency controls? Are you waiting for your house to burn down? Are you waiting for your kid to be bloodied in the street? Is that what you're waiting for? Because I'm telling you, I tell them, I'm telling you, if you wait, you've lost. Mm -hmm. Because it'll be too late by that time. And the hold on this myth of the golden medina is so strong that it's preventing people from thinking straight 
Their eyes see things, but their mind doesn't process it. They can't believe what they're seeing. It's got to end. They're, they're not the real Americans. That these demagogues are a passing phenomenon. Well, they aren't. It's reality. Every galut that we've been in has ended really poorly for the Jewish community by hyper-assimilation or by physical destruction. I mean, our history has shown itself to be quite cyclical in that regard. Absolutely. 100%. You know, the fancy word is it's the ineluctable nature of, of our history. <laughs> okay, learn from it. The U.S. is no exception. Right. So how do you convince them? I it's, it's a problem. But I know that there are acceptable and effective solutions, interim solutions, that can set the stage for uh, an Aliyah. I'm working right now uh, with the French community mm -hmm. to promote French Aliyah. There are roughly 50,000 uh, real Jews in France that are prepared to make Aliyah. And they've been largely prevented from doing so by our own government here for various bureaucratic reasons. But imagine this, that now that we have a change of government and the new diaspora minister is a good guy, I mean, can you imagine 50,000 well-educated French Jews coming here? What they would add to this country is unimaginable. Right. And, and this is what we have to focus this new government on. Save who you can. And one way I suggested was with this educational policy, science and technology policy with American Jewish kids. And the other is with this block of French Olim that are waiting to come. What you have to think about, though, is, and they don't do this here, is how do we assimilate these people? And we have to, we have to really, you know, there's some good ideas that are out there to, to, to facilitate their absorption. But we have to act. We can't wait. And, and we have to get as many of them as we can out while we can with their possessions and with their money. And you're also involved now in local educational initiatives. You just opened a nursery school in honor of your late wife, Esther. Yeah, it's called Gan Esther. Mm -hmm. we, we have a building program now. We're, we're trying to raise about six million, six and a half million shekels so we can move from temporary facilities to permanent facilities. And it was Esther's belief, uh, which I subscribe to wholeheartedly, that if you lack a Jewish identity, it doesn't matter how many guns, how many tanks, how many airplanes, how many cannon you have, you won't win the war for survival. A Jew who knows who he is, what he is, and what his mission in this land is, will be victorious in every battle that he fights, Al-Kiddush Hashem. So what we're fighting now is yet another battle for the Jewish identity of this country. And it was Esther's belief, it was her belief, that unless you catch these kids at the earliest possible moment and inculcate within them, the true nature of the Jewish identity, it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, later on in their lives to get their attention. Her belief was that if they decide to walk away from Judaism later in life, at least we have to make sure they know what they're walking away from. Mm -hmm. She felt that right now it's better actually for the school system to graduate ignoramuses than apikorsen. Okay. Because with an ignoramus, at least you have a chance of coming back and, and teaching them something.
Right. But when you have the opposition entrenched in the educational system, illegally, by the way, with no bid contracts and the like, which are illegal, then you're actually brainwashing the kids in, in a way that will prevent them from learning the truth later on in life. Mm-hmm. When I asked a parent, a, a set of parents why, who were very chiloni, why they were sending their kids to a, I guess you would call it a dati uh, school in the middle of Tel Aviv, their answer was amazing. They said to me, quote, our parents denied us an understanding of our faith, of our God, and our mission here. We want our children to teach us those things. Well, you know what? That is gi'ula. Right. When the children teach the parents. When the kids start bringing, these little kids, I was amazed. Nobody, if anybody's been in a gun, you know it's, it's like a nightmare. But these kids were actually saying brachot before eating. Mm-hmm. Imagine that. And they were bringing candles home. The girls were bringing candles home for their mothers for Shabbat. Wow. What a great start. Baruch Hashem. That is impressive. So we're trying very hard to get this school off the ground. And, um, you know, Bizrat Hashem will be successful and we'll move on to the next town to start up a school like this. And that's what we have to work on. Jewish identity. Because if we don't have it, we have nothing. Know who you are. Know why we're here, and know what our mission is. Right, and we'll do just fine here. All right. Well, Jonathan Pollard, thank you so much for joining me on the show. My pleasure. I look forward to seeing you tonight. You're our keynote speaker at our first annual gala in Jerusalem. So, if uh, listeners haven't yet purchased tickets, please do. We start at eight o'clock, and uh, I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you for having me, and uh, see you tonight. This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you've been listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Any listeners interested in supporting the show can do so by heading over to visionmag.org or visionmovement.org and clicking Donate on the menu bar up top. Uh, This show is completely listener-funded. We don't want that to change, and we very much appreciate your support. And anyone looking for the show notes can find them at visionmag.org backslash the next stage 91.